Today is State of the Church Day. On September 20th, 2015, I was named the sixth senior pastor here at Dunwoody Baptist Church. I followed Dr. Spear, Dr. Chavis, Dr. Vestal, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Hannah. These were guys who really knew how to be a pastor. I was sort of a first-timer at it. But they each left a unique footprint, and we all built on the ministry of Andrew Smith. I talk about him every now and then. So glad, Andrew, that you're back in our fellowship. And if you want to know that whole story that started uh, pretty much the week I was born, uh, you'll have to buy Andrew and I a cup of coffee, and we would be glad to tell it to you. I'm blessed to be here. I've watched God do incredible things through incredible people here. I guess I ought to get to the slide. We're in Revelation, I promise. But this morning I want to do something a little bit different. You guys have seen God work here. I have too. Through people and their efforts, their dreams, their, uh, their initiatives, but also just through stuff that only God could do. We've seen miracles. We've seen circumstances. We've seen hard work. We've seen faithfulness on your part. You are DBC. This morning, I want to not so much do stats and numbers and that kind of stuff. I'm going to save that for tonight. And I want to encourage all of you to be back tonight for our semi-annual church conference. We only have two a year around here. I like to say that in the spring we deal with inspiration, in the fall we deal with perspiration. And so tonight we will approve our budget, we will uh, staff all of the leadership, um, nominating, finance, uh, personnel, missions, all the teams that sort of uh, are behind the scenes making everything work. So uh, I want to talk about stories this morning. The uh, phrase, stories of impact, is on our missions wall at the other end of the campus. And, and that's what missions are. They, the, the missions people have sort of taught me that phrase, stories of impact, where we uh, not so much look at how many did this or how much did this cost or uh, what are we going to build next or is that air conditioner broken again. All of those are important things and we'll talk about those tonight. But this morning, I want us to talk about stories, events, testimonies, mission trips, relationships, local and global missions partners that inspire us, direct our thoughts to the amazing things that God is doing among us. Stories that go beyond numbers. I love that we have guests every week. Some of you are here today for the first time, and, and welcome, and sorry that this first part is boring to you, but it... It's going to get better, I promise. Revelation, how can it not? But we have guests almost every week. I have to introduce myself to people almost every week. And I, and I always say, is this your first time? And they'll say, yeah, first time, second time, third time. We watched you online for a while. They inspire us. This is an email, and I'm going to redact it just a little bit because I don't have permission to, to share all of it. Um, it's a mom who wrote me this email this week. I've been bragging all over Atlanta to friends about DBC, but I felt I needed to tell you and your staff what a, an amazing job you're doing. 
The way y'all welcome new people into the church is top notch. As a parent watching it all unfold, I can just say I'm very thankful for your team and their care for the congregation. My daughter and her fiance are recent uh, attenders. They just finished college, had amazing churches where they went to college and never thought they'd find a similar situation in Atlanta. They saw DBC on the website. She started going to an early morning women's Bible study because she saw it there. She meshed with the ladies that were exactly uh, what she was looking for. These ladies even traveled to her bridal shower. Then uh, they got into the uh, Sunday school or Bible study class. Again, they saw it on the DBC website. Then they got in a small group from that group. They love the teaching and the soundness of theology, the honor and respect for women in leadership. So just to encourage, y'all are doing a fantastic job praying for you. I don't know if any of you have ever been to the baptistry since all the renovations took place, but we started a new tradition after we moved back into the worship center after Project Main Street in March of 2021. And everybody that's baptized signs the sheetrock on the back of the wall of the baptistry. And just seeing all of those names and the dates, children's handwriting, a family all baptized together, it's, a, it's an incredibly inspiring thing, and, and it tells stories of life change. The dining room project is now complete. We've caught up on most of our maintenance issues. As I've said before, Alan, is the number still 91? 91 air conditioners that we have to keep running around this place so that most of you in here can tell me you're too cold. (laughs) Working on that too. I love the sounds of children Uh, The concrete floor of the new lobby makes an echo that is absolutely wonderful. Just the cacophony of of squeals and screams and running back and forth from mom and dad to whoever's going to be the surrogate for a little while. It's an amazing thing. Every Sunday morning, every Monday night, if you were to wander through here or better yet volunteer... We have a thing called Conversation Club, where the, the multitude of internationals that are in this area, they come here just to sit in the lobby and practice their English. And so there are twos and threes all over the church on Monday night. They're not in here because there's a men's Bible study uh, group in here that's somewhere between three and 400 men. There's a recovery group that's meeting somewhere down the hall, another recovery group that's meeting somewhere else. There's stuff going on in the gym, stuff going on in the fitness center. We are pretty much busy seven days a week. Back in Jim Johnson's time, he called our church the everyday church for everyday people. And we really are an everyday church. Sports, fitness, camp ministries, are all incredibly healthy. That's a a resurgence after COVID. 
uh, it was a struggle to see the, the, the viability of those ministries continue, but they're, they're continuing to teach sports, continuing to provide a place for exercise, continuing to have a place of conversation about the, the, the work that Jesus is doing in their lives. Our preschool is full again. It's amazing. It's noisy. They line up for carpool right outside my office. I am real sure that a backpack is coming through that glass door at some point in the future. It's glorious. We have Bible studies on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday that I know of. Many life groups, new and old, some life groups at this church have met for 40 years or more. And some of them have been formed in the last week. And they are people sitting knee to knee around living rooms talking about life, talking about Scripture, talking about the things of faith that they're working out in this community we call DBC. It's amazing. We are better. Jason, it's great to see you this morning. Some of you know Jason's enthusiastic worship from the back corner over there. We are better because he's here. We are better because we say welcome. And you as a church have done that. Discipleship initiatives, stories of discipleship. Our, our curriculum in discipleship is coordinated for the first time in decades. And we are better for it. 400 of you uh, experienced God last fall together. Online participation averages more than 400 people every week. That's why tonight we will name Gary McIntyre. We will vote on him as our, our new digital pastor because he interacts with a church of 400 people every single week online. Many of you attend that church when you are away for whatever reason. When we started the live stream, it was with the goal that people would stay plugged in even if they were somewhere else. And they tell me all the time, I missed the sermon in that series, but I caught up with it online. I saw it on YouTube, watched it on Facebook, listened to it while I was driving. Glad you weren't watching. I'm not that entertaining. And so we, 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 we are seeing these kinds of things, these kind of stories, student ministry, children's ministry, worship and arts ministry. Our Dunway School for the Arts is growing at a rate that we're not really sure where we're going to put them all. We have so many children, adults, and music lessons that we're, we're not really sure where they're going to go. Maybe if you have a piano in your basement, we'll talk. Gary will also give attention to our senior adults, our mature adults. We, we have, a, have a gap in that place for ministry to go on. I believe that we have the best team of pastors and staff that we've ever had. They're dedicated, they're called, they face forward, they lead well. As a team, we're committed to leading and serving well. And if you came and just sat with us during the office hours, you'd think it was a college fraternity. We just have that much fun. And yet, we are very attuned to what the work is to be if we could only keep our staff healthy. 
It is a sad commentary when the 66th senior pastor is the healthiest one on the staff. (laughs) We're committed to serving, working together as we look to the season of a new senior leader at the church. And about that, it was a year ago this Sunday that I told you that I had uh, intentions to retire one day. And uh, over the past year, the search team has worked really, really hard. You'll hear their report tonight. And, uh, and we continue to grow. We continue to, to move forward, uh, even as we are in this season of transition. Judy and I are seeking to see what the next season Obviously, with the changes in our family, our our retirement plan is very much in flux. We don't have any immediate plans. We are waiting to see what opportunities happen. I'm going to take Jared up on his opportunity that he presented to me to join the choir every now and then in this service. That will be tragic. So, Judy, I guess we'll, uh, no, you don't drag you into this. Speaking of that, I deeply appreciate the way that all of you wrapped your arms around us, Uh, the way that you loved on us as we grieved the loss of our 34-year-old son, and and we placed his ashes in the columbarium right behind where I stand. It uh, It was moving the way that you wrapped around us our Son, our daughter-in-law, ex-daughter-in-law, our grandson, they feel well-loved because of you, and we do too. So thank you from Sarah and Adam and Mallory and Reed and Judy and I, thank you so very much. You didn't judge, you didn't overwhelm us with advice, you just loved on us. But the challenges of a different kind are in front of us. And I couldn't help but say that after I did a brief discussion on what was going on in the church, I needed to hop over to Ephesians and check in, I mean to Revelation and check in on some churches. Now I promised you that I was going to do all the churches this week. My staff convinced me that that was way too ambitious. So I'm going to do the Church of Ephesus this week, and I'll do the other six next week. And then if Robert is able to stand, he's going to talk to us about worship from the Revelation, and I'm really excited about that. If he's not able to stand up, I'm just going to read his notes. (laughs) Challenges of a different kind. So in your text, look at Revelation chapter 1. That introduces where we're going, just to remind you the doxology that I read just a few minutes ago. And then he says in chapter 1, verse 11, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to these seven churches. These seven churches. Let me give you a preview of who they are. Ephesus, the church that lost its first love. Smyrna, the church that would suffer persecution. Pergamum, the church that needed to repent. Thyatira, the church that had false prophets. Sardis, the church that had fallen asleep. Philadelphia, the church that endured patiently. 
Laodicea, the church with the lukewarm faith. Many times we think that all seven of these churches got fussed at in Revelation, but if you look closely, two of them were sort of doing the right thing, and, and John didn't have any corrective for them. So we're going to take each of them and see what we can learn for them from them, but today I want to talk about Ephesus. Now, I showed you this map because it's really interesting. The order that these churches are in kind of goes counterclockwise beginning with Ephesus. The Romans were famous for building really, really good roads. And there was a road that connected all of these cities in sort of a loop. The longest leg of that journey was from Laodicea back to Ephesus. Other than that, they're all about 50 miles apart. Now, I don't know why John, through the Spirit, I don't know why Jesus led John to, to only give us these seven churches. They're not in Greece. They're not in Europe. They're not in Palestine. They're, not any, they're, they're in, a, in Asia Minor, a place where, where churches were just beginning to be established. And so by the end of the first century... 90 to 95-ish, when John wrote the Revelation, these churches were, were new, were, were, were relatively young in their faith. Our church is almost 60 years old. So if Jesus died in 33 and this was written in 95, these churches would be about the age that we are now. And so they, they, they were... Uh, put there for a reason. He named them for a reason. And all I can come up with is that the whole book of Revelation, the, the, the letters to these churches, there are two main purposes. One, they were literal, actual churches in the first century that needed some correction. And number two, they represent churches through the ages that need a similar reminder. And that leads us to Ephesus. Well, it almost does. I wanted to show you one more slide. I apologize to you for the amount of letters that are on this next slide. Just get over it. I wanted you to see that each of these letters has a similar pattern. That, that in each of the, the admonitions to each of the churches, there is an address to that congregation there is an introduction of Jesus. There is a statement regarding the condition of the church. I know your works is how that usually works. Then there's a, a verdict from Jesus. There's, a, there's a, a statement about what their condition indicates. A command from Jesus to the church. A general exhortation to all Christians. And then a promise of reward. So, so that pattern is going to repeat itself over and over throughout all seven of the churches that we're going to look at this week and next week. So enough of the, uh, uh, the professor uh, language. Let's look at the churches, at the instructions to the church at Ephesus. And I want to wrap this around some, uh, maybe some questions. Uh, Judy was a journalism major at LSU and and so out of respect, I'm going to wrap these around the, the journalist questions of who, what, where, why, when, how, and 
who's going to jail. No, I won't do that part. So the church at Ephesus, who are these people? What was going on in Ephesians? Ephesus was a town of about a quarter of a million in the first century. The theater that's in Ephesus is one of the most spectacular archaeological ruins in the world, and it wasn't even the centerpiece of Ephesus. It's what we have today. But the number of people that could sit in the theater at Ephesus is about the same number of people who can watch the Atlanta Hawks play basketball in the arena in Atlanta if that many people cared enough to watch the Hawks play basketball. 25,000 people could be seated and heard and, and could observe the, the entertainment and the, the, the plays that went on in that theater. The library is a, is a spectacular ruin that's there. And the most spectacular ruin of all was the temple of Artemis. The Greeks called her Artemis. The Romans called her Diana. And they built a temple there that had 127 columns around it, each column 60 feet tall. And so it was one of the ancient, one of the wonders of the ancient world, an incredible uh, temple, and it wasn't the only temple that was there. The, the temples that were there sort of talked about the way they were in Ephesus. It was a very wealthy town. It was a, it was a seaport. Their, their harbor was incredible. Today that harbor is silted over. But the, 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 the commerce that went through there, the, the junction of all those roads we talked about a minute ago. And so you've got all this going on in Ephesus, but you also have the temple to Diana or, or, or Artemis and the temple to Hadrian, one of the, the great emperors of Rome, the temple to Domitian, who was the current emperor of Rome, uh, the, there were over 20 temples that were pagan religion in their purpose. You had sorcery, you had witchcraft, you had philosophers, you had the, the, what was called the cult of emperor worship, where when Domitian built his temple, he had no problem with the people referring to him as a deity. That the, this, this cult that was really located in Asia Minor of emperor worship, that, that, that we pray to the emperor, the emperor will help us, the emperor will forgive us, the emperor will guide us, all, all the ways that we would look at God. And so there was this, this climate of pagan, secular, worshipful every spring. There was a, a ritualistic pilgrimage to Ephesus to, to worship at the temple of Artemis. And it was a highly promiscuous, highly uh, sensual culture of worship. And, and so that's kind of who the Ephesians were. But the, the story in Scripture is that Paul said, that's a pretty important place. He lived there for three years. He sent Timothy, his arguably his, his number one protege, he sent him to be there to be the pastor of the, the young church at Ephesus. The, the story of, 
uh, of uh, what was going on at the church of Ephesus is, is found in uh, Ephesians, obviously, Acts, where it was founded, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 Peter, Revelation. So some reference to Ephesus is in all of those places. And when Paul wrote about it in Acts, he said, I told you about this day after day after day, that there would be false teachers there, that the the infusion of all of this pagan worship is going to get on you if you're not careful. So be very, very vigilant. And it appears, for the most part, that they were. Because he says they were doing some things very, very well. So chapter 2 begins... To the angel, which was probably a reference to the elders or to the, uh, to the, the leaders of the church, not, not, not so much the supernatural, just the way it's, it's worded here. But it was, these words were meant for the church at Ephesus. He says, write these things. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, Jesus, he was introduced in chapter 1. I, uh, who walks among the seven lampstands. And the lampstands are each of these churches. So uh, the first lampstand is the church at Ephesus, and then counterclockwise, then Smyrna and Pergamum and so forth. And so he says, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance. We should read those as a triad. Those, those words traveled together in Scripture a good bit. And then there are lots of words like that that are, that are in groups of usually three. And they, they travel together. So he says, I know your works. I know that you're doing good stuff. You're believing the right things. Toil is a word that's usually linked with endurance. That toil is work, but it's work to the point of weariness. And so he says, I know that you can't bear those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles. So what he warned them of in Acts chapter 20, they are, they are, are doing good things. They will not tolerate wrong thinking. Stay with me. They will not tolerate poor theology. So he says that you've tested those who are, call themselves apostles. You've found them to be false. You're bearing up for my name's sake, says Jesus. You've not grown weary. Put a pause there between verse 3 and verse 4 and hop down to verse 6. He says, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. And we're going, well, who are those people that they get called out in Revelation? Well, there's a number of options there. The, the word origin of the word Nicolaus would, would have to do with people who exert power over people. But it's possible that they were a group of people who were uh, claiming um, their founding father as one of the seven deacons who was appointed in Acts chapter 6, uh, Nicholas. And they claimed to have superior knowledge to everybody else. We know more about the Word of God we know what it really means. Our interpretation of it is the right interpretation of it. And if, if you don't believe it, you must be bad. 
Anybody having trouble finding relevance for the 21st century? We live in an age today where we beat each other over the head with Bible interpretation. And if you, if you don't believe my interpretation of it, you're a bad person. I can't fellowship with you. And it makes me wonder if maybe there's a, a prophetic challenge that's very, very appropriate. And so Paul ministered there, and, and he said, you, you won't tolerate them. Over in chapter 2, verse 15, we're going to see that the Nicolaitans are linked with sexual immorality. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15, so also some of you at Pergamum have, have held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans and therefore repent. So what were they doing well? Well, what were they not doing well? He says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had. Some of your translations say you have lost your first love. And that's unfortunate. They didn't lose it. They left it. They didn't misplace it. They abandoned it. And there's a difference. To lose something can be out of negligence or careless, but to walk away from something, to, to deliberately uh, discard something. And that's the word that he uses here. My translation says you've abandoned the love that you had at first. What if? What if? They held on to right doctrine. Orthodoxy. They held on to the right uh, theology, and, and they, they, they firmly had belief that Jesus Christ was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that no one comes to the Father but through Him. And what if their refinement of that approached the thinking of the Pharisees who, who, who would have no use for anybody who broke the rules? What if the, uh, the, the, the first love that they lost were the two core values that start our four core values to love God and love people? What if they'd abandoned their love for God in such a way that they can't keep in mind that He told them to love people? And when Jesus was asked, what are the two greatest commandments? He put those two on the table. Love God. Love people. What if they had valued orthodoxy so much that they had lost orthopraxy? They had lost the, the application or the, the forward thinking that allows that love to include even broken people who were willing to repent. Hmm. What does that remind you of? So they left their first love. They abandoned their first love. Well, what should they do about it? Well, he tells them. Again, three words that often travel together. He said, remember, verse 5, therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did before. Well, remember is important. We, we're going to have the Lord's Supper communion in just a few minutes. 
And it's an opportunity for us to remember our first love, remember uh, that He forgave us of our sins, remember that if you have given your heart and soul to Christ, that He has washed your sins away with His own blood shed freely and willingly on the cross. Remember that. Remember the place you came in. Repent. Take stock. Paul said, let a man examine himself when we take the Lord's Supper that you would not remember in an unworthy manner, that you would not remember casually, but that you would repent of things that were still in your life, thoughts, actions, attitudes, and you would repent of those things even as you remember with the Lord's Supper. And that you would do the works that you did before. And the way these verbs are sort of uh, phrased, they are both individual and corporate. Church, remember, repent, do the work. Alan, you're the pastor, repent, remember, do the work. They, They are individual, and yet they are also collective. And then he said, if you don't do these things, I'm going to pull your lampstand. You will no longer be a church. And that sounds harsh, but it's not as harsh as if he was going to pull their lampstand out of heaven. He's he's just saying you will no longer be a church. And it makes a lot of sense that a church without love is not really a church at all. That a church that has abandoned the willingness to love people even who are hard to love and to point them back to the truth that no one comes to the Father but through Christ, that the, the forgiveness of sin is, is His purview and His alone as He shed blood on the cross so that we could be forgiven. That's what He said in the doxology in chapter 1. And so the, the church without love is not a church at all. And that's why we observe communion. Deacons, if you will go ahead and get ready. Communion is that place where we remember with a cup, a small piece of unleavened bread, It's the place where we remember that without being forced to do so, Jesus took upon the sins of the world as He died for us on the cross. The juice represents His blood. The wafer represents His body. And so when we pass first the wafer... Then the Jews, we are reminded that Jesus shed his blood for us. I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then the deacons will serve you with the wafer and then the juice. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for a church, God, that, uh, that strives to be who you want us to be. Don't let us lose our first love. Don't let us abandon our love for you and for others. I pray in Jesus' name.